Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. We've reported on the big business of legal marijuana in some New England states and the legislative fights over legalization in others. But we're going to focus today on another crop, hemp, that's legal to grow in most of our region and is attracting new advocates, both on the farm and in state government. Brian Hurlbert, the Connecticut Commissioner of Agriculture, says the state's pilot program signed up 66 licensed growers this year, and it's taking the place of another controversial crop that's long been the staple of the Connecticut River Valley. Hemp will be the new tobacco of 100 years ago, when every farm or many farms had 5 or 10 acres of broadleaf tobacco because it's a high-value cash crop. So that was the crop that stabilized the rest of the farm operation. In Vermont, some 450 farmers planted hemp this year, But in Massachusetts, some farmers and retailers find themselves in limbo as a new state policy takes effect in different ways in different communities. It's a ban on the sale of some hemp products, including foods with the cannabis extract, CBD. WBUR's Zeninjor and Wameka looks at how those affected are reacting. It's not hard to find CBD in Northampton. Just walk into Cornucopia Natural Wellness Market on Main Street. It's got organic vegetables, square-shaped herbal soaps, and plenty of kombucha. It's also got CBD, lots of CBD. Nate Clifford owns the store. We started here, we had a foot and a half maybe of product, and it's expanded into one shelf, two shelves, three shelves, now five shelves, it's like 25 feet of CBD. And it's extremely popular. He sells CBD drops, gummies, and even olive oil. And there's also the honeys and things that have CBD infused into it. CBD has gotten a lot of hype. It's often promoted as a way to relieve anxiety, pain, and other ailments. And he thought he had a pretty good thing going here. That is, until he received this letter from Northampton's Public Health Department. At this time, we are asking you to voluntarily take all CBD-infused food products off your shelf as state and federal regulations are still being created to ensure safety to customers. The letter was sent to all food and retail establishments in Northampton. But Clifford doesn't see why officials are coming down on CBD. The CBD he sells comes from hemp, which has very low levels of THC, the psychoactive part of marijuana. Meanwhile, marijuana, with its higher levels of THC, is already legal in Massachusetts. Clifford says he'll stop making CBD-infused chocolates. But as for the rest of the CBD products he carries... We're expected to stand up to the man here. This is Northampton, so it's, it's really a town that's... Um, there's a protest over something almost every week. You know, honestly, if I pull products before I really absolutely have to, a lot of my customers will come in here and be like, you bow down to the man. Um, so we carry these things because people want them and because they're doing therapeutic things for folks. We intend to keep providing those things for them. Just across Main Street, the store Shop Therapy has taken a different approach. Donovan Bartish is the assistant store manager. Oh, we're having a fire sale on it. I mean, we're not going to be able to sell it anymore. So I see you have some signs here that say all CBD edibles, buy one, get one free. That's right. 
yeah, at this point, all we're trying to do is at least get some of our money back on our investment we've made with this stuff. And, yeah. and how much you, have you spent on this? Thousands, yeah, without a doubt. Bartish says the ban on CBD edibles goes too far and hurts local businesses. Personally, I think it's asinine because I've not heard of a single instance of it hurting anyone at all. Not one. But federal regulators say many health claims about CBD are unproven and they want more research on it. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has even warned several companies about their claims, including Wakefield-based Cureleaf. Just up Main Street in Northampton's municipal building is the person in charge of enforcing the CBD food ban here. So CBD has taken us by surprise. Meredith O'Leary is Northampton's director of public health. She's the one who issued the letter to businesses about CBD. My inspectors were coming to me saying that our stores, our retail stores, were saturated with CBD products, and I really didn't even know what CBD was. O'Leary says she looked into CBD and talked to different agencies about it. She says she's just carrying out the state's policy, which follows guidelines from the FDA. And the FDA says it's unlawful to add CBD to food. So when my inspectors go out and do their regular inspections, we're not going to be looking for it. We're not going to be targeting anyone. When they're going out to do their regular food inspections, if they see that CBD-infused food products are being sold, we're going to ask them again to voluntarily take them off the shelf. Cities and towns across Massachusetts are taking different approaches. Some, like Northampton, have issued warning letters. Some have not. Some are giving businesses until next year to sell off their products. Others appear to have no real enforcement at all. Julia Agron is a hemp farmer with the Northeast Sustainable Hemp Association. You know, that makes for a different regulatory environment. It makes for a very difficult environment in which to grow a business. So a lot of things are sort of still up in the air. There may be some legislative relief in sight. A bill was filed in Massachusetts last month to legalize CBD products made from hemp. Agron says a legislative solution can't come soon enough. Because farming is seasonal, and farmers can't necessarily wait till October for these things to be resolved if they're hoping to recoup the money they've already spent putting seeds in the ground and growing plants. I hope they really take this up and move it forward. And legislation could provide more clarity for cities and towns tasked with enforcement. In the meantime, the FDA is still evaluating how it might regulate CBD. So its stance could change. If that happens, the state says it would review its policy. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. While hemp growers and CBD sellers are awaiting more clarity on the future of their business, there's another twist to the hemp boom. Increasingly, people are smoking hemp buds in the same way that Americans have smoked marijuana buds for 100 years. VPR's Emily Corwin has our story. When Congress legalized hemp farming at the end of last year, a CNN reporter wrote this, quote, if you try to smoke hemp, you'll probably just end up with a headache. And honestly, that's what I thought would happen, too, until I started talking to people like Kelsey Rapp. What year was that story? 2018. No way. Oh, my gosh. They did not do good research. Rapp and her family own Green State Gardener, a cannabis garden store and CBD retailer. They carefully cultivate hemp flower specifically for smoking. She says the old headache myth, that's if you smoke industrial hemp, 
homegrown for textiles. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for making time. When I stop by her store in Burlington, Rap gestures to the display case. It's unfortunate that I don't have like a lovely giant display of packaged flour because it's sold out and we keep having trouble keeping up with the demand. There are three reasons Rap says her customers smoke hemp. Some mix it with today's extra potent marijuana to mellow it out. So that's what we would call a salad. Others smoke hemp for the super fast delivery of CBDs. People say it quickly reduces insomnia and anxiety, though research on this stuff is still early days. And then a lot of people? They're, they're in it for the ritual of the smoking. Rap says people like the act of smoking, and they like that hemp isn't addictive or psychoactive. And all of this is good for business. Jonathan Miller is general counsel for the Hemp Roundtable, a national hemp lobbying group. Demand for hemp flour or smokable hemp is, is a, uh, a very small part of the hemp and CBD marketplace, but it is, uh, seems to be the one that's growing most rapidly. If a cannabis plant is 0.3% THC or greater, it's marijuana. Anything lower is hemp. And while Vermont has not yet legalized marijuana for sale outside of medical dispensaries, it is legal to sell hemp and to smoke it. It's also profitable. My name is David Hull, and my company is VPR. Not this VPR. Vermont Pre-Rolls is a company that makes an herbal joint out of Vermont hemp. Hull is based in Brattleboro. He packages these joints, if you will, and sells them increasingly out of state to cafes and boutiques in New York and bars and clubs in Florida, where you can still smoke indoors. Although about a half dozen states have banned smokable hemp, the rest are fair game. And so, I mean, my my big question for this story is, like, how's business? It's good. Both Hulla and Rapp say they started their smokable hemp products in part as placeholders, a way to get a foothold before marijuana is legal for retail. And both say there's so much demand, their hemp business isn't going anywhere. I ask Hull if he ever worries about selling a product you smoke. The research is pretty clear that inhaling smoke is bad. Yeah, it's, um, I'm not too keen on it, um... I'd like to think that I'm helping some people smoke less uh, pot um, uh, and and fewer cigarettes, and that's uh, maybe it's just blinders at the moment. But um, but it 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 doesn't feel great, but it doesn't feel horrible. I guess what I'm doing. Everything sells, from bath bombs to hot cocoa to honey sticks. It's unbelievable. He's a customer. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a hemp farmer. Fred. I stopped by Joey Verga's new CBD store in downtown Burlington called Greenleaf Central. While I'm there, Fred Morin swings by. Do you smoke pre-rolls at all? Yeah, yeah, I do. I smoke hemp. Um, What's I, it do for you? I think it well, helps me uh, kind of relax. Um, like, you me know. too. Yeah. Let me tell you. Verga <laughs> puts a pre-rolled me. hemp joint in my hand. I grew that hemp. Oh. I grew the hemp here. Ah. Like outside. We walk out to the alley where a single hemp plant sits in the sun. Beautiful out today. Is this like, you look do good I at, inhale? Or you look a good cigar? already. Yeah, like a cigar. No, no, inhale. I give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want some? Yeah, that's pretty good. After two more drags, 
I think, I might feel a little different. And then I think, it might just be in my head. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Emily Corwin. Coming up, we'll ask the question, how many deer are too many deer? But first, Lyme disease was first discovered in New England, and a new podcast digs into the history and the science. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Since it was first discovered in the 1970s, the tick-borne disease named after a town in Connecticut has been a scourge of people who love the outdoors. Lyme disease is carried by black-legged or deer ticks, and it affects some 300,000 people nationwide, according to the CDC. Although the disease has spread down the eastern seaboard and is found in parts of the Midwest, Lyme's concentrations are highest here in New England. The new podcast from NHPR, Patient Zero, explores this enigmatic disease from its discovery to the controversy surrounding its treatment. Taylor Quimby is the producer and host of Patient Zero, and he joins me now. Welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. No, thanks so much for having me. Why did you decide to dig into Lyme disease as a topic for your podcast? It's kind of a crazy story. A couple of years ago, one of my colleagues and I, in a two-week span, both got diagnosed with Lyme disease, but we had totally different experiences. It's a personal story in that way. It's a story that affects many, many thousands of people across New England. But you zero in early on in your series on the person that you're at least referring to as your patient zero. Maybe you can explain who exactly she was. One of the very first cases of Lyme disease was discovered in the 1970s. There was a woman named Polly Murray, and she and her family were just going through this slate of terrible symptoms. She was documenting all these things that were happening and was very convinced that there was some connection between the rashes and flus and arthritis that her children were experiencing and what she and her husband were as well. And eventually she called the Connecticut State Health Department to really say, like, hey, I think there's something going on here and you folks need to check it out. That kind of launched what will later become Lyme disease. It's a complicated multi-system illness that can affect a lot of different parts of the body. And when you think about the epidemiological process, this, this stage where somebody is trying to really figure something out that nobody has yet, they're starting with a narrow idea. What can we find in common with these people? What is the really unusual thing that we can know for sure that we're studying? And then they have to sort of move outwards to try and figure out, okay, what are the other symptoms that might not be happening all the time but are connected to this disease? And it is a complicated process made even harder because they could not figure out what the pathogen, what the bacteria causing Lyme disease was for many, many years. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how these disease detectives, these epidemiologists, 
finally zeroed in on this, finally called this disease Lyme disease and figured out that this is something that's actually affecting anybody who comes in contact with this type of tick. They started to zero in on what we now call the black-legged tick, the deer tick. Exodes scapularis is its scientific name. You know, once they started to realize that the cases vaguely matched the range of this tick, they started to have a real sense that this was a problem that was in New England and the Midwest and started to expand the boundaries of the epidemic. The science behind Lyme disease is fascinating as well. And in the third episode of your podcast, it's something that you dive into. As a matter of fact, let's take a quick listen to a bit of this podcast. It's from Taylor Quimby and NHPR, and the podcast is called Patient Zero. So let's zoom in and figure out what happens once the pathogen that causes Lyme enters your body. The tick is crawling, undetected. It finds a good spot inside the moist, warm cave of a human armpit. It cuts its way into the skin and pulls its mouth parts into place and starts swapping fluids with you, the host. And along for the ride are a bunch of corkscrew-shaped bacteria, spirochetes, the agent of Lyme disease. Borrelia burgdorferi. Well, the most important thing is just a single cell. It's a very simple organism. You may remember the dulcet tones of microbiologist Alan Barber here. He'll be our guide on this fantastic voyage. But it, if you, what it looks like is like a, uh, a snake on the ground. And it has this kind of um, these little motors that have uh, sort of hair-like projections coming out of the cell and like a an outboard motor, you know, that's rotating, and that gives the motion to the, the bacteria. Remember those little motors. They're going to be important later on. But zoom in even further, and you'll notice that the skin of the spirochete, so to speak, is very textured. In fact, it almost looks like it's covered in weird little spikes. spikes or, or I think I would say it's more like a forest with sort of the, the trees, the canopy on top. These are outer surface proteins. Why do you care about them? Because they stimulate your immune system. Your body makes immune cells that respond to the specific shape of that little canopy of trees. You can get Lyme disease more than once because different strains of Borrelia have different arrangements of spikes, so your body doesn't immediately recognize it if you get it again. These proteins are the key component of the Lyme disease vaccine, called Lymerix, that was commercially available in the late 90s. And they're the key component of the Lyme vaccine you can still get today for your dog. This is a very ancient form of um, responding to, to pathogens that, you know, we share with uh, fruit flies and worms and things like that. In Lyme disease, the immune system is, well, it's sort of everything. It's the system that will hopefully fight off the infection. But it's also what triggers your symptoms. The flood of stuff that sweeps in to fight off an illness, white blood cells, immune cells, little chemical messengers that call for backup, all of it brings inflammation. A lot of the symptoms I think the people experience, some of the signs of disease are from the in inflammation itself, and not so much because the, the bacterium is, is producing a poison or a toxin or anything like that. Inflammation is even the mechanism that makes the characteristic bullseye rash of Lyme disease. In order to make way for all your immune cells, blood vessels in your body dilate. They get bigger. 
which means more blood is flowing through them, and on the outside, it can make your skin look red. But strangely, the center of the bullseye is where you'd be least likely to find the bacteria, because it's using those little outboard motors, motoring away from the tick, setting off the alarms as it goes, and making a break for it. The best place to find the bacteria at that point would be just beyond that leading edge. Leading edge. In other words, it's a race. A race between your immune response and the bacteria, which is trying to run and hide. That's from Patient Zero. It's a new podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking with producer Taylor Quimby. Where do you go in your storytelling? We're going to talk a little bit more about testing. So people have probably heard that the testing for Lyme disease is not ideal. There's a lot of misinformation about there, out there about the tests. A little bit later, we're going to talk about some areas that are very controversial, long-term antibiotic use. And we're going to talk about the very nature of science. What does it mean to know anything? And how do we make decisions about medicine when we don't have all the answers at hand? Do you feel like you have a different understanding of Lyme disease now that you've done all this research that maybe some questions for you have been answered? Or do you still feel like, wow, I, I don't fully understand it? I don't fully understand it, and I don't think anybody really does, and I think anybody that tells you that they know everything about Lyme disease is someone you should be skeptical of. And Lyme disease is an issue that has affected a lot of different people in different ways. We should listen to people, we should hear their stories, but we should understand that this is a complicated illness, and there is no one story that represents the entire disease. Taylor Quimby is the host and producer of Patient Zero. It's a new podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Taylor, congratulations on the great work, and thanks so much for joining us here on Next. Thanks so much for having me. Despite Lyme disease being carried by deer ticks, research over the last decade suggests that more deer don't necessarily mean more Lyme. Studies from both Harvard and the University of Oslo in Norway suggest that the spread of the disease isn't linked directly to a booming deer population. But that boom is causing other problems. All across the eastern U.S., white-tailed deer are changing the composition and structure of our forest ecosystems. Deer are herbivores, and they're generalists. They will eat or browse seven or more pounds of green food a day, including wildflowers and native bushes and native tree saplings, and a lot of what makes the woods the woods as we know them. To be fair, though, deer aren't alone. Climate change, insects and pathogens, invasive species of all kinds— these are all stressors that contribute to the problem in the woods, but deer are arguably the bluntest instrument of change. Producer Erica Heilman brings us this story. In much of New England, there's still a good balance between deer and their habitat. There are still natural predators in these areas, and cold winters provide a natural control on the deer population. But if you head south or toward warmer areas, agricultural areas, suburban areas, deer are thriving and they are prolific. And we love them. Animal lovers love them. Hunters love them. They create revenue for wildlife agencies. They sell millions of dollars of magazines and camouflage pants and ammunition. They are benign creatures, and they are a complicated business. This is Tom Rowinski, a U.S. Forest Service botanist based in Durham, New Hampshire. So the white-tailed deer is a very smart and prolific prey species. So for thousands of years, it's believed that the main predator of white-tailed deer for 10,000 years were Native Americans. It was their main source of sustenance. And you know, back then, there were wolves and mountain lions and all that. So here come the Europeans. And the first thing we did was tame the wilderness. 
right? We shot off the wolves that might prey on our sheep, mountain lions, etc. And only in the last maybe 60, 70 years when suburban sprawl occurred, that eliminated lots of areas to, for hunting because you couldn't hunt as effectively. And hunting sort of declined. So in the absence of predation, it's simple biology that a prey species is just going to grow out the yin-yang. So that's what we're dealing with. We've made a hell of a mess. This is New Hampshire-based forester Jeremy Turner. You know, things that aren't supposed to be where they are and, and what things are supposed to be there aren't. Development patterns and manipulating and shifting and changing the land for transport, for building and all these things. But from a deer standpoint, they like that. That makes a really exciting habitat for them. Edges, grasses, a lot of cover. In my vegetable garden? Yep, your vegetable garden. They like that, yeah. How many deer is too many? To the average person, that's probably, there's never too many. So when you start to work within the woods and, and start to think like, the trees, and you start to think like deer, you, whether you're a hunter or you're a forester, thinking like trees, thinking like deer as a hunter, you, you start to pay attention to the habitat, the quality of forest health. And a lot of these systems where there's high deer density by river valleys and farm ag lands, those superficially still look like hardwood stands because you can see the foliage, you can see, you know, the adult tall trees, but you get underneath those systems, those components that make a nice northern hardwood stand are not there anymore because they've been browsed out. You know, a deer-ravaged forest isn't apparent to the, the casual viewer, but what I look for are, are there wildflowers there? Are they able to produce flowers and fruit? Because, you know, the understory plants, they're the base of the food chain. If you want butterflies and bees, you have to have flowers, right? And if you want new trees, you have to have baby trees. The deer have impacts you know, throughout the ecosystem, and they affect bird life, small mammal life. And, you know, I go out with some birders, but they tell stories of certain sites where there used to be brown thrashers or rough grouse, and they're gone because there's no structural habitat to them. So all that is indicative of a really bad problem. Um, and we think we can do that. So our goal here is to, is to provide, to maximize hunter satisfaction and to more effectively manage our deer population given some of the challenges um, we face today. That's Nick Fortin, a wildlife biologist and the deer project leader for fish and wildlife in the state of Vermont. He's talking to a room full of people in the cafeteria at Riverside Middle School in Springfield, Vermont. Hunters mostly. This year, the department proposed significant changes to its deer hunting laws, including increasing the number of antlerless deer that can be harvested. In March and April, the department presented the proposal to the public at meetings held across the state. As in most states, fish and wildlife agencies are tasked with maintaining healthy deer populations and controlling deer impact on forests. This is not easy. Certainly to our south, southern New York, Connecticut is a great example, parts of eastern Massachusetts where hunting is challenging because there's so many people. There are way too many deer. Forests don't regenerate. And we're starting to see that creep into Vermont. You know, along the Connecticut River Valley, southeastern Vermont, we definitely see that problem. We have nowhere near the number of deer they have in, in southern New England or the mid-Atlantic states. I mean, not even close. But 
we still have too many. And so I think the most challenging thing is telling hunters, telling a lot of people, we have too many deer when we don't have that many deer. <laughs> First thing, our deer population is changing, has changed over the past several decades and continues to change. You know, I'm very sympathetic towards the wildlife agencies trying to find this balance to keep the hunters happy and to mitigate all these problems environmentally. If you think of some of these conservation groups or land trusts, a lot of them would protect this land and then they'd lock it up. They'd put a hiking trail, people could walk their dogs. So they tried to gentrify these properties. And the, how to gentrify it is initially keep, kick the hunters out. Well, that backfired terribly when the deer herd started to build so much on these properties. And one by one, I've seen towns reverse this, what I call eco-environmental gentrification. So now these towns are welcoming back the hunters because initially the thought was, well, let's kick the hunters out because they hurt animals and they might hurt people. Well, what happened is that the wildlife populations have crashed. We've lost birds. The wildlife isn't any better that hunters are shooting them. So that's very encouraging that hunters now are recognized as members of the community and the role they play. Uh, but that's one bright spot. You know, so it's difficult. But, but the biggest problem is the posted property where the hunter on public land sees very few deer and doesn't think that while you're telling everybody there's all kinds of deer, we have to shoot more doe. And I understand it. Where I hunt, I see none. And riding home, you know, there's a whole crap load over there under those yellow signs. And I know that's a lot. So the department thing, is, is primarily funded by, by hunting and fishing license sales. So on one hand, we are dependent on hunters and anglers to support our jobs, to support the work we do. We do get some general fund money. It's a small portion of our budget. You know, we're, we're just, we're limited in, you know, even though deer are public property, they belong to all Vermonters, a private landowner by, you know, preventing hunting essentially, which is our one management tool, by preventing hunting, they are preventing us from managing a public resource but there's not much we can do about it. You know, we don't have the legal authority to say you have to let allow hunting on your land. You have rights as a landowner, but the deer are public property and we are the stewards of the, that resource and we are unable to effectively steward it. I think Vermont, a lot of you know, big money is moving into the state and these people who move in don't have any experience with the, the local culture and maybe the culture of hunting. And they may, as a first re reaction, is to post their land. And in thinking about that, you know, if I owned a chunk of land in Vermont, I don't think I would want strangers on my property with guns. You know, as much as I am pro-hunting, if it's my land, I don't think I'd like that. But what I would do is I would put up signs that say, hunting by permission only. So these people would come to me. I could see who they are. I could say yes or no. I could limit the number of people on my property and feel good about it. So hunting by permission only. There should be thousands of those signs all around. And I think with fish and, fish and wildlife, is it, is yeah. it in Vermont? Um, they're trying to gauge you know, feedback from a very broad group of people, and the deer hunting experience can be louder than the science. But we have departments of fish and game, fish and wildlife in Vermont, fish and game in New Hampshire, and biologists 
on staff that operate the, the business of managing critters. And if we're trying to have quality habitat and quality deer and healthy forests, then that is springboarded from just good science. Why is this a, so hard for people? Why do people avoid this topic? Killing. They do not want to talk about that. This is Lynn Levine, a consulting forester and environmental educator in southern Vermont. Hunters want as many deer as possible out there. But the forester is out there that's the hunter, sees the browse that's happening out there. And they're saying this is the problem. Who else doesn't want to talk about the killing? Well, people that do not want to kill any animals which are a very small percentage of the population that are that extreme. I've had articles written in the paper and been, and I haven't gotten a pushback at all about people saying, no, this is not acceptable when they hear the rationale. That voice of no hunting is small, loud, but small. We need to kill more Angelus deer. Simple as that. Or... The forest is just not going to be there. It, it's hard to get people to understand the, the value of forests. You know, they are, they're, they're, they're there. They're everywhere. It's trees. You can't hurt a tree. But it's really not just the trees. A forest is a much more complex ecosystem. And it's all the other species. It's not just the plants. It's all the other species that live there. The songbirds, you know, the other mammals, moose, bear, turkey, all the species we have in Vermont are in some way dependent on our forests. We're dependent on our forests. You know, we talk about ecosystems like it's the wilderness that no one ever interacts with. But, you know, it's all the same landscape. The human parts of it and the, the more wild parts of it are all part of the same landscape. So having healthy wildlife populations so everyone can see them is one thing, but having healthy ecosystems so that everyone has clean water, we have green mountains, we have clean air, you know, we have pollinators that pollinate our crops so we have food. I mean, all of these things, it's all part of the same thing. What I see, a real key is for us to recalibrate our sense of place in nature that we are part of nature, and humans have been a part of this ecosystem, you know, for the last 12,000 years at least. But we have to accept that we are part of nature. And for those of us who derive food from nature or work on the land, we have to find that healthy, I think, uh, relationship. And in having that relationship, it means, you know, catching fish and eating them, perhaps, and shooting a deer. And, having a big party to celebrate. Uh, so I think that's where the hope is. You know, you got to remember, these are, these are plants. They're big plants, trees. They're big plants, and they take, they take a long time to grow, and it took a long time for them to become what they are today. But, you know, often we're, we as a culture that aren't around trees and working within trees we typically aren't comfortable with that reality of time. We're often thinking day to day, or maybe week to week, or month to month. But to think decade to decade, or you know, a century, that's what it takes to, to manage trees and, and forests. 
you know, trees can't speak. So they need people like us to to advocate for them. That story is by Erica Heilman, and it's from the Resilient Forest series produced by Northern Woodlands Magazine. You've been listening to Jeremy Turner, Tom Rowinski, Nick Fortin, and Lynn Levine. Music for the show is by Vermont musician Brian Clark. Forest Sound is from Laurel Symes and researchers from Dartmouth College and the Hubbard Brook Long-Term Ecological Research Project. Coming up, shrinking school populations means a new kind of football for some high schools. We'll tackle eight-man football next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. One of the recurring themes of our coverage of New England over these last few years has been the aging of our population and the shrinking of many communities. That's meant school consolidations and closures in some places that just don't have enough school-age students. It's also changing the landscape of scholastic sports, at least in Maine, where this football season kicked off with 10 schools competing with a new type of game, eight-man football. Steve Craig is a sports writer for the Portland Press-Herald, and he's been covering this change. Steve, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. There's an obvious question here, Steve, which is how exactly is eight-man football different than 11-man football? I know the numbers are different, but I know there's more to it than that. Maybe you can explain the differences. Well, the biggest difference is with three fewer players, on offense, they'll take away two linemen. So they'll only be those three kids down kind of with their hands in the dirt instead of the normal five. Also, one skill position player is removed. That could be a running back or a wide receiver. And and it'll all depend on what play is called, what it looks like is missing. Defensively, also three fewer guys. So it's in very simple terms, it's usually one less lineman one less linebacker, one less defensive back. But again, it's based on how the coaches choose to play it. The other big thing in Maine is that the field is skinnier by 40 feet. They'll still play on 100-yard long fields, but uh, this field will not be as wide. When did Maine schools start to consider the idea of downsizing to eight-man football? I think it really started to gain some traction in between the 2017 and 18 seasons. They had had a couple of years where they tried what they referred to as a developmental 11-man team. That happened after five schools had to basically shutter their varsity programs because of lack of numbers. And you could see the trends moving in that direction. Statewide, something like 17% fewer players over a 10-year span ending in 2017. That really pretty much equals the statewide high school enrollment drop. So the schools are getting smaller. The schools have been getting smaller for some time, but it's not just that, not just that there's fewer students at many of these schools, but also that the overall participation in football is down. Talk about that, if you would. Well, I I think it stems from myriad factors. Certainly, you cannot 
discount the concern over concussions specifically and injuries in general. As more studies have come out and football's kind of been the target, some would say maybe a little unfairly because other sports also have high concussion rates. And then you get the scares with the chronic, I'll just call it CTE because I can't pronounce its long name, but the brain injury that's shown up in many dead NFL players. It's scary. So that's been affecting football. Other factors contribute to sports specialization. Football is kind of that one sport that, for the most part, is still just a seasonal sport. If you're committed to lacrosse or baseball or basketball, you've got all these other options to continue to play those sports in the fall now. Competitiveness is always a problem when you have a mixture of schools that are big and small. Has that been a problem in Maine high school football, just some teams that are overpowering others and making for uncompetitive scores? Short answer is yes, very much so. Part of that is participation, that some programs have extremely strong participation with strong theater programs. And not surprisingly, when you're good, more interest, more kids want to get involved in something that's popular and successful. And then they're competing against schools that may have a very similar student population size, but they're just not getting the participation and they're struggling. Demographics can maybe play a role in Maine, too. A few of our traditionally strong schools have seen a a real shift in the demographics of their population. And some would speculate that, especially with a lot of immigrants from Africa, football's not a sport they've ever grown up playing. That's a bit of a factor for a few of our schools. We've told some of these stories on Next before, too. They might end up with stronger soccer programs because people are coming from countries where, where soccer or football, as it's known in the rest of the world, that's the most popular sport. Sure. Lewiston is the second largest and nearly the largest school in the state, and their football program has struggled over the last, say, decade, while their soccer team is in one year was considered the best soccer team in the country. How are people reacting to the idea of downsizing to an eight-man league? I think the jury's still out on that. It'll be real fascinating to see, actually, after they see the game. There's always going to be some initial naysayers, but the communities I've talked to that have adopted eight-man, they are telling me that their communities are behind it because they recognize it really does make sense for their school. Specifically, I'm talking about Old Orchard Beach, which is a small school. It's only about 230 students. They've had football for a long time, but they saw this early on as as the appropriate place for their high school. Their coach, who's also the athletic director, did a good job of getting out early ahead of it and promoting it. They'll host the very first game on Thursday, uh, September 5th. So they feel like their community has supported them. Pretty often when we talk about big changes in scholastic sports, we end up talking to people who are athletic directors or superintendents of programs, parents. I would guess that the most important thing when you're talking about high school sports is the kids themselves. What are they saying? What do they think about playing eight-man football in these 10 schools in Maine that are now going to switch to it? They're very much in favor of it. And they admit that they had some misgivings early on because it's different than what they grew up playing they realize that there's really more similarities than there are differences to the sport. They're still padded up. They're still going to tackle. This isn't flag football. And there's going to be a lot of strategy. There's going to be the practices all week long leading to that one big weekly event. And uh, they're excited. I think they also feel like they kind of have a little bit of a responsibility to show that it is still legitimate football. It's just a different form of legitimate football. And they also 
several of the kids, I asked them, well, why is it even important to save football? You know, with all the negative talk about it and the concern about concussions. And it was fascinating to hear these kids talk about how much the sport meant to them. All the cliches that coaches have touted for years, but these kids very earnestly believe that this sport has done a lot of good for them. And they're glad they still can play. Steve Craig is a staff writer who writes about sports for the Portland Press-Herald. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. The school that Steve profiles in his story, Old Orchard Beach, has its first home game scheduled this weekend with Yarmouth. But it's up against some pretty steep competition for interest. See, it is Labor Day weekend, and people there will be soaking in those final unofficial last days of summer. Producers Marissa Schneiderman and Caroline Hadilaxano take us there now to introduce us to the king of Old Orchard Beach. So I'm trying to find Elvis. Have you seen him? Elvis? Yeah. Maybe 10 minutes ago. Elvis? Yeah, you know, with the big red cape? I thought Elvis died in Utica, New York a number of years ago. Have you seen Elvis by any chance? Elvis, yeah, he was over there a little while ago. Elvis, what? Right there. Now what? We're here in Old Orchard Beach, a seaside town in southern Maine that comes alive for the summer. For over a century, the boardwalk and carnival have served as a sunny escape for families around New England and Canada. With the Ferris wheel and the roller coaster in full swing, they munch on vinegar-salted pier fries, get their caricatures drawn, take chili dips in the Atlantic, and then there's Elvis. Dressed in red polyester, decked out in sequins, a black wig, and trademarked aviator shades, we meet Roland. What do you think about that? He looks like Elvis, or some version of him from the 70s. Yeah. And I wrote the song and I created the dance. But he's not busking for money. I put on Elvis costume because at least the costume helps out a lot. But once they get to know the dance, they think, I won't need this costume. Elvis Presley was great, but I want to do my own thing. Elvis is known as the king of rock and roll. He swiveled his hips and made girls faint. But rock and Roland's moves, they're different. More like a frantic chicken. It's original, to him. You ever see anybody else do a dance like that? Roland spent most of his years on Old Orchard Beach, though he now lives in low-income affordable housing in Biddeford. He often walks the four miles in his sequin suit to get to the pier but he has his sights set on something bigger. What I want to do is go to Las Vegas and see if I can make it with my new dance. You know, I'm just wasting my time down here. I'm not going to get famous in the Beach. And when are you headed to Las Vegas? I don't really know yet. I'm scared to go. I'm really scared to go. That place is wild. And how old are you? Do I have to tell you that? I'm going to be 82 in December. I didn't create this dance until I was 79. You know, 20 years ago, I said, oh, geez, I'm going to dread being 81. Everybody says, geez, every year I see you, you get younger. What's going on with you? <laughs> What's his secret? We tried to figure it out. Maybe it's his chutzpah to dream that keeps him young. They tell me you're the best dancer in here. It makes me feel good, you know? I say, hey, why stop living if there are people like you? And do you like yourself? Well, I should hope so. I don't hate myself, I like myself, but I wish I would have created the dance about 20 years ago. I wish that would have happened. 
And that's not the only thing he wishes he could change. I want to do away with that with pussy. I want to be trying to be myself. Rocky rolling, that's what I want to be. But anyway, that's the way it is. If I don't make it in Las Vegas, that's it. I mean, I'll just take the rest of my days and take it easy and that's it. Here in Old Orchard, we can feel the last gasp of summer. The shorter days, the frenetic push to soak up the remaining sun-filled moments. It feels both near and far that in just a few months, the streets will be covered in snow, the amusement park disassembled and packed away. And when the bustle of Old Orchard Beach will turn into cold days and off-season rentals, we'll think about rock and Roland. These two months, when Old Orchard comes to life, when Roland can put on his red suit, dance, and sing for the masses, these months give us something to look forward to after the winter thaws. That story is by producers Marissa Schneiderman and Caroline Hadiloxano. The music is from the band Triple Burner. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts and search Next to New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Next is produced this week by Robin Doyne-Aiken. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Patrick Scahill and Kion Wolf. Our music is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio. 